Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Nine goals at Carroll Road, a standoff between Aguero and Valencia, and Leicester is back on top of the table. How'd that happen? Um, Arsenal. Elsewhere, signs of life for Swansea, Watford is back in the win column, and as remarkable as this sounds, Manchester United found a way to be even more inept going forward. Welcome everybody to this edition of the World Soccer Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. As we go into a League Cup week and an FA Cup weekend, we're going to take this moment to savor our last Premier League action until next Tuesday. The best way to do that would be to jump right in and talk about the 5-4 at Norwich, but being the masochists we are, we're going to go to the Emirates first. My co-hosts, Karta Krishnayar and Lawrence McKenna, are with me, and gentlemen, Arsenal-Chelsea was rightly billed as the match of the round, though it didn't live quite up to that hype. A uh, 22nd-minute goal, goal from Diego Costa was the only scoring in Chelsea's 1-0 victory, and much of the match was decided four minutes earlier when Paramenta Soccer was sent off. Kartik, I want to stave off the inevitable questions about Arsenal and the narrative around Arsenal. I want to stave that off for a little bit and just talk about the game. Uh, describe what happened to Paramenta Soccer, and, and do you think... Do you think he should have been red carded? Yeah, Murata Soccer is a player that uh, his skill comes from his tactical knowledge and his positioning sense. And he's obviously very good in the air, but he's not the quickest, not the fleetest of foot. And he got caught out of position there, committed a foul. It was a foul he had to commit, and he got sent off. Uh, it was a, a he was a clear sending off, unfortunately, for Arsenal. Do you but, think he had to commit it? Yeah, well, that's maybe. What I to ask. Well, okay, maybe he didn't have to. Maybe yeah, especially that early in the game. Player. If, it, if okay. it's the 82nd minute and it's nil-nil, I understand that. But with 72 minutes to go, even if you think that Costa is going to beat you, he probably has, I don't know, at best like a 50-50 chance at a goal at that point. Even if you think it's even if you think it's a 100% chance, don't you keep your team on 11 men and go down a goal? Yeah, I, I think maybe this is another case of Chelsea being an Arsenal's head. Murder soccer, very heady player, as I said. Very smart player, typically. That, that, that's his reputation. Maybe if this is uh, against somebody else, and some some other striker has gotten behind him. But let's say they're playing uh, Everton and Lukaku's gotten behind him. He just lets them go and lets them score, and, and realizes there's 72 minutes to rescue the game. And, and chances are Arsenal playing at home in the Emirates in front of their crowd will score once or twice if on 11 men. For people who didn't see it, William has the ball. He carries it over the center line. Plays a very good through ball between Arsenal center backs. Diego Costa coming from wide left has per Metro Soccer beaten. Murta Soccer goes to ground. Is adjudicated to have tripped up Costa with Costa behind him. Nobody else between Costa and goal. He sees a red card in the 18th minute. Arsenal played pretty well down a man for the next 72 minutes, but still lost one to nothing. Lawrence, do you agree with the call? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think I, I, I was I had a problem with some of the refereeing in the game, just the way that he let it run or the way that he spoke to the players. I think it got all a bit out of hand. But overall, I think um, were we talking about whether the way a player falls affects the call? We were talking about that in regards to Cesc Fabregas not getting uh, the call in the second half when he was uh, when he went to ground in the area after being knocked over by Koscielny. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just wonder. That, I mean, some people are saying Diego Costa should have stayed on his feet uh, <laughs> when he was fouled. Um, like, but you sort of think at that point, well, you know, he's got a bit of license there. Yeah, um, and he's not the only person that would have drug a foot to make sure there was some contact. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, you know, some people. But then that plays more into the point that Arsenal do seem to play the game a little naively. Could mm. I say? Um, that, well, that, against that's Chelsea, especially, uh, especially yeah. against Chelsea, I think again. Mourinho might be gone, but this is still a, a bogey team for them. This is still a bugaboo for them. I, I remember them exploding for five goals at Stamford Bridge a few years ago and winning that game. But other than that, I don't remember them beating Chelsea recently, home or away. I, I think it's been a long time since they've beaten them at the Emirates. Yeah, I think Nipun mentioned that was probably, that was their only win in the last four years against Chelsea, something like that. And Kartik, you mentioned the idea of Chelsea being in Arsenal's head a little bit. After the game today, I was walking around here in Portland and really thinking about the fact that Throughout this week, Wenger and his staff probably hammered home the fact that you can't let Diego Costa get to you based on what happened in the first meeting of the year between these teams and um, Gabriel being sent off. Most of our listeners will remember that. And I just wonder if there was a split moment in Mertesacker's mind where he maybe thought, you know, I'm not going to go down for this. And then he maybe kind of double checked himself and said, no, I'm not going to let Costa keep me on my feet for this one if I would go down otherwise. Obviously, that's a question we can never get answered there. But it was this weird situation where, like Lawrence alluded to, you kind of wonder, why did he have to do that? Why did he do that right there? Well, some people are saying he looked across as if he was looking for a, a, a line, an offside call. But actually, I think he was looking across to see if he was the last man, and I think that's it he too. could make yeah. the the, uh, the the tackle. And I think he didn't think he was the last man. And then, it, it, for me, even more so, that's why I'm questioning whether the call was right. Uh, it, the way that Diego Costa kicks the ball and he almost looks to go across Koscielny right. to go wide of the keeper and to go wide of the goal, give himself a better angle. Uh, that's when Mertesacker makes the tackle. And you know, you think, well, Koscielny probably could have made up that ground. Yeah. I guess that's why I'm Yeah, I'm not... and I thought initially also, you're right, because Klattenberg originally uh, uh, put, uh, reached for the other pocket, and I thought, okay, he's just getting a yellow. And then when he put, moved his hand over, I said, uh-oh. Uh, yeah. Because I, th- I think we were all thinking he wasn't the last man back. And yeah. it wasn't a clear goal-scoring opportunity in that split second. And, and as you said that, I just remembered that I reacted the same way, especially when Klattenberg appeared to look, reach for his pocket where we know the yellow cards are. And then he cha- he kind of moved his hand over and was like, "Uh oh, here we go again." Mm-hmm. I, I gotta be honest, I would have been okay with a yellow in that situation. Maybe it's because I didn't see that as clear of a goal scoring opportunity as maybe other people did. I think Costa, like Lawrence was alluding to, seemed to have one more maneuver in him before he was gonna go toward goal. And I know a lot of people will say last man, last man, but the three of us know that's not really a thing. That's more of just a shorthand people use sometimes to identify a denial of a goal scoring opportunity. And I guess the obvious part here is that I question a little bit, although um, based on how that call is usually interpreted, Kartik, I think that Clattenburg was in the right to interpret it the way he did. Yeah. You can't argue with that that call. Maybe you can argue with the non-penalty call later when Fabregas was taken down. But then again, perhaps that was Clattenburg overcompensating for knowing he had sent a guy off with 72 minutes uh, remaining in, in this derby. 
Mm. Yeah, that's what I did find unusual. It changed the whole match. And obviously when they took Giroud off, it's, for me, it seemed like a strange tactical decision. Yeah, I didn't get that one either. I kind of thought that Joel Campbell was the obvious person to take off there and then just uh, Ozil would kind of play wide to in instead of behind the striker. Kartik, what did you think about that? I, I, I can't find the reasoning for taking Giroud. I was stunned, and I, I, I think I tweeted the same thing, that I thought it was Campbell. I actually was about to tweet Campbell coming off, and then I thought, well, maybe it'll be Walcott, and it turned out to be Giroud. The explanation is apparently Giroud was carrying a knock. So if you're, if you're <laughs> Giroud obviously didn't think that's a good explanation. Right. But if you're if you're down to ten men and you're going to have to do a lot more running, which he was going to have to do, maybe he was going to have to be pulled at at, at minute sixty anyway, yeah, and maybe. he would be the obvious substitution for when Sanchez came on, and then he would push mm-hmm. uh, Walcott forward. But or you could play Sanchez forward, but he was going to probably have to be subbed off anyway. Is what I now subsequently understand. Uh, Arsenal fans were saying so that might explain that was a sub Wenger was going to have to burn anyway. So the red card didn't cost him as much because that was a guy he was going to bring off. Uh, after and he brought Gabrielle anyway. on at the back and you just sort of look at it and think, okay, well, yeah, it's either Gabrielle or That whole Chambers, unit's right? out. Right? The whole Gabrielle. unit, there's no unit there. And, you know, yeah. as, as much as they held held together, I think Chelsea didn't make the most of their opportunities. You know, I mean, they, they Loic Rami just seemed to continue to run towards the back line in a really strange way when he came on the pitch. And Diego Costa didn't nearly take enough advantage of that. The only time he did that was essentially when Gabriel had just come on and they had no shape. And even then you think, well, why did Koscielny let him go anyway? Hmm. You mentioned shape there. I guess that's the one argument for taking Giroud off. Uh, you kind of maintain more of your base shape if you just kind of have mo- Metsu also still play a number 10 or a false nine for a while, but you started to give yourself an easy out. Well, yeah, but I think what they were doing is that they were using Campbell uh, on one side and uh, Walcott on the other to kind of make these, these runs from wide positions to play kind of a false nine role. So Mm. the the rest of the shape remained as is without that striker. So I think you're right, Richard, that was, uh, also weighing in Wenger's thinking. Yeah, so maybe I shouldn't be so harsh about it. I, just because it's something I wouldn't have done, I wouldn't have made that change. Uh, doesn't mean that Wenger hadn't had it planned out. Although I would say in the minutes after the red card, you didn't see Wenger immediately going to the bench and calling on somebody to get warmed up or something like that. He seemed to spend three or four minutes almost shocked that it happened. And I guess that to me plays into this kind of narrative, Lawrence, that we have around Arsenal about them being a little bit naive or they're letting these situations get to them or all these other flimsy excuses that we usually bring together to say Arsenal is being Arsenal and they tend to either lose games like this or find ways to dip out of title races. And in those moments after the red card, that kind of stupefaction and disbelief, that's when I started feeling like this is maybe the same Arsenal that we're used to seeing season after season. It's almost like an ignorance that almost keeps them going. And I don't say that in a derogatory way. Um, you know, I think sometimes ignorance in sport can really help people because the Chelsea players are clearly ignorant or, you know, clearly ignorant to the fact that the long term of them being the bad guys is not going to play out well for them. Um, you know, the, the Diego Costa side, the Seth Fabregas side, etc. Um, and I think over time, Arsene Wenger's played into that. But I think he's finding it hard now to, you know, essentially some ignorance helps him in his coaching because it means he can shape them in whatever way he wants. Um, but I, I think at this point, it's hard to be ignorant to such obvious facts. And that's part of the problem with the way that Arsenal and sometimes arguing with their fans comes on the internet. You know, a lot of people are loath to criticise Arsenal directly because of the way they get lambasted afterwards. <laughs> and actually the point would be, you know, if I think the, the point with Arsene Wenger is he reflected on a lot of things and probably has the best reflection on this game. That if Arsenal, the best thing they can do at this point in the season is just treat this like another game. It was an unfortunate 1-0 loss that they probably should have won that game. 
move on to the next match. Yeah. And I still think that doesn't really hit them off their stride of taking the title because it wasn't like either of the other two teams well, either the other side who's going to compete for the title, which is Man City, was so much better this weekend. Hmm. Uh, we may have to revise that thinking about who else is in this title race uh, because uh, obviously Arsenal, I think, were better than Man City this weekend, even though Man City got a point. But Leicester and Spurs are in this title race. Yeah, we're going to devote mm-hmm. the next yeah. segment, segment to that uh, about how much Spurs are really playing themselves in the title race. What does Leicester's new lead at the top of the table mean? But as far as this result is concerned, Chelsea's 1-0 win at the Emirates, regardless of what it says about Arsenal, it really did open up the title race even more, if, if that was even possible. But that match on Sunday was only one of 10 this weekend, with round 23 starting on Saturday at Carrow Road, where Norwich and Liverpool combined for 12 shots and 9 goals. A 95th minute winner from Adam Lallana gave the Reds a 5-4 win and 7th place in the Premier League. At the Stadium of Light, a goal for the second game in a row from Patrick Van Aanholt cancelled out Benica Fobi's opener and left Sunderland and Bournemouth drawn 1-1. Watford got goals from Odia Nagalu and Craig Cathcart in their 1-2-1 win over visiting Newcastle. West Brom and Aston Villa gave us one of the worst matches of the season, a 0-0 at the Hawthorns. Tottenham continued their fine form with a 3-1 win at Crystal Palace. Leicester got goals from Danny Drinkwater, Jamie Vardy, and Leonardo Ulloa in a 3-0 win over visiting Stoke. Charlie Austin scored on on his Southampton debut as the Saints won 1-0 at Manchester United and Manchester City thanks to two goals from Sergio Aguero closed Saturday's action with a 2-2 at Upton Park and a Valencia supplying both goals for the Hammers. On Sunday, Everton dominated play but still fell to visiting Swansea 2-1 and Chelsea of course took that 1-0 from Arsenal. The results leave Leicester City back on top of the table, the only team averaging over two points per game this season. Their 47 through 23 rounds is three better than second place City, who hold a goal difference edge on now third place Arsenal. Tottenham is five points back. At the bottom, Villa is unbeaten in three, but still 11 points from safety with 13. Sunderland's draw moved them to 19 points on the season, while Swansea's two-win week means Newcastle is back in the bottom three. They're 31 points, too short of 17th Norwich. When we come back, we'll talk about the title race, which again sees Europe's Cinderella story leading the way. Staying with us, this is the World Soccer Talk Podcast. Welcome back, everybody, and welcome to a Premier League universe where Leicester City is back on top of the table in one of the more convincing performances of the weekend, their 3-0 win over Stoke City. Lawrence, for all the stars that we've identified with City this year, Vardy and Mares, uh, pro- most prominent of them, I still feel like we're not getting Angolo, giving Angolo Conte his due, and, and he really sh- showed brightly on Saturday. Yeah, and it's about looking at um, also his influence all over the pitch. I mean, you know, it's very easy to call players uh, who have a very focused role, you know, like Vardy and Mares, although Mares is a bit more widespread, uh, talismanic players. But then there's the wider influence. I'm not sure that I know a player who covers so much ground and so much of the pitch as Kante does alongside the likes of Drinkwater. And I do think it's the qualities of both players that are meshing very well. The midfield too is working quite nicely, which is, you know, it, it seems like it's actually a progression. We, you know, we talk about four four two as a regression. I actually think this season we can see four four two as a progression. We'll see more sides move back towards that, and it's been played very, very well. And he's he's playing such a fantastic role there, and it, tackling in so many different positions that it makes him really effective. Mm-hmm. You, you know, the only side is sort of the fitness side, and you hope that sort of remains because he seems really integral 
to the way that side move and the shape and the way that they also break the opposition down in order to do what Vardy and Mares do. Yeah, I think if you have players that can cover a lot of ground like Conte and Okazaki, it makes it a little bit easier to play 4-4-2. And then when you have players like an Albrighton who is kind of your classic wide 4-4-2 midfielder, it, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, Kartik, the one thing about Conte that I think is interesting to me, and I think over the last couple months if people started talking about him that we passed, we've passed over it and we didn't really, uh, examine why it was that Danny Drinkwater seemed to get more publicity than Conte over the first couple months of the season. And then people slowly started coming around to the idea that there was this new player from the French league that was there. It just seems really weird to me, Kartik, that whenever situations like this happens, we kind of default to the more familiar, the the British guy playing in the British league. And we just get a little bit lazy like that. It seems like. Yeah. I thought that was lazy analysis. And then of course, I, I think the other piece of lazy analysis was that uh, that there had to have been some sort of knock-on, carry-on effect from from last season and from the way they ended the season under Nigel Pearson before he was sacked. Because in fact, two of the, the real significant contributors uh, to this team, uh, Okazaki, who came in from from uh, Mines this summer, and uh, and obviously. Uh, Conte were signed uh, under Rainieri, or, or even if they were signed before Pearson was sacked, because he was sacked in the middle of the summer, they were new players mm-hmm. that were making a big impact. I think what Okasaki does is he's, he's effective foil for Vardy, and Vardy is the kind of striker that seems to uh, be more comfortable in a 4-4-2 running off of another striker, playing off of another striker that can hold this position. And Conte is just brilliant, box-to-box, mid- uh, box-to-box midfielder, excuse me, who wins the ball and quickly can transition uh, from uh, defense to attack. And I know we talk about how uh, simple it is, uh, or p- another simple analysis is how uh, a team can sit back, absorb pressure, win the ball, and then counterattack. But the way Leicester does it, and I think I've said this on this show before, they're the best counterattacking side I've seen in this league since Chelsea in the early days under Mourinho when they had Good Johnson and they had a young Aryan Robin and they had uh, Damian Duff and all these uh, Drogba and Lampard, these great counterattacking players. This, this team, I noticed it even in the game against Villa where they didn't get the full three points uh, last week and then yesterday against Stoke. The positioning sense, once Conte wins the ball in midfield and they transition, the positioning sense of Albrighton, of Mares, of Vardy, of Okazaki, then Ajoa when he comes on, and Drinkwater, perfect. They know exactly where their teammates are going to be. They know when Conte is going to deliver them the ball, where he's going to deliver them the ball, and it's it's just freaking brilliant. And there was one, uh, excuse my language, it's, it's brilliant. There was one chance which Vardy missed where uh, he turned up and it just shows you the team spirit and the appreciation for one another, where he then started applauding the move that Conte had made to get him into that position, even though he missed a chance to score score a goal yesterday. And to me, that was so very clear as to the spirit of this side and the understanding of one another's impact on each other's game. It, it was great to see. Leicester's now three points clear at the top of the table, that edge over both Manchester City and Arsenal. They've got both of those teams coming up over their next three games. Liverpool is in that stretch too. We're going to talk about that more next weekend when we preview the 24th round of the Premier League. That's going to be a midweek round next week. But let's move on and let's talk about another title contender, one that was a little bit more disappointing. Uh, Lawrence, let's talk about West Ham, Manchester City. Twice Sergio Aguero had to bring Manchester City back from deficits. We saw in the first Cole again, the perils of playing this version of Yaya Ture. Beyond that, though, 
given how West Ham has been playing of late, this actually looks like a decent point going on the road, getting one at a team that's in the top six in the league. Yeah, I see what you're saying. A lot of the time, the statistics do sort of point to the fact that West Ham are playing above and over maybe what is expected. And, you know, I know that what is expected isn't always, you know, what we're supposed to go by. Bilic is a manager that's very good at getting more than what is expected out of a side and technically getting the best from his players. And that's why I think they did so well against um, City because of the way they technically outplayed them. Um, And City do tend to struggle against sides who just seem to focus on outplaying City as opposed to playing them in a sort of going toe-to-toe, essentially. Um, And I I think that worked really well here for them. I, I still think, though, that City should have done more because when we look at the results for West Ham, what they've tended to do is they played very well, but at the same time they played sides who don't particularly seem to be playing at their best level when they're playing West Ham, for whatever reason it is. Hmm. So I still think City should have gotten a better result here, and I, I think they should be disappointed because, you know, with Arsenal losing and playing a different game this weekend, they should have done better. Kartik, I know you were disappointed in City's performance. Yeah, the performance was terrible. I'd be very disappointed if I were a West Ham fan coming away from that match with just a point. Uh, City were abject. Again, uh, gave up a goal within a minute. Uh, defensively, uh, their their errors. The midfield is is wide, too open. Yaya Torre not tracking runners. Uh, I, I think something is off with David Silva. He hasn't played well in, in I would say six weeks now, which is hard to believe. This is the worst stretch of matches he's had in his City career. He just turned thirty, also. So let's keep that in mind. And he's an older thirty, like Wayne Rooney. We, we've discussed this with Rooney mm-hmm. because Silva has had to play in a tournament every summer, just about for Spain. Confederations Cup in addition to Euros and World Cup. So that he, he's an older 30. But I, I thought West Ham lost the game. Alex Song, for me, was the best player on the pitch besides Paye. Uh, the big difference maker for Manchester City was the youngster, once again, 19 years old, uh, mm-hmm. Kalichi Inacho. Yeah, when agree. he came on and kind of played in that silver role uh, it, it, right behind uh, the striker, Aguero. And the link-up play ran through him, and he kind of changed the complexion of that game. Uh, this is a major consideration for Pellegrini now. He's 19 years old. You've got a very ex- expensively assembled squad. And then this youngster uh, come through your system or was bought from a uh, Nigerian club at 17 and has been in city system for the last few seasons. But he seems to be the spark plug on this side. We've seen it several times this season. And I know Pellegrini is conscious of wanting to manage his minutes and manage his game time at such a young age. But uh, he has something that... Uh, uh, that that it seems to, the size lacking without him. We're going to say this a lot over the next couple of months, but for as unconvincing as Manchester City has been beyond the first month and a half of the season, they're in second place. They're three points back. They have a game coming up with the leaders. They always play better in spring. And this is what Arsenal stumbles has created, a situation where a team like City or a team like uh, Leicester City, if they go on a run, even if they're like, a shell of what that Liverpool team was a couple years ago when they pulled themselves when they pulled themselves to the edge of a title. Uh, this league is just there for the taking, which leads me to discussion of Spurs guys. Three one win at Selhurst Park, and I, I think when we later in the show we're all going to end up agreeing that Spurs now look like the best team in the league at the moment. At least they're playing like the best team in the league. So Kartik, I want to ask you a version of the question I asked Nipun uh, midweek. How long do Spurs have to play like this before you, Lawrence, maybe myself to a little bit, I've been higher on Spurs than most people. How long do they have to play like this before you guys consider them a legitimate title contender? One result. Spurs, you know, 
Leicester City won a week and a half ago. Mm. I think that's the result that's in everyone's mind. And if you just reverse that result, Spurs are top ta- top of the table right now, and Leicester is back and forth. So uh, that that I think was the gut check. That was the match. That was the first head to head we had had since the calendar tra- uh, after the festive period between uh, top four teams, title contenders, and mm. Leicester beat them at White Hart Lane. At White Hart Lane, I think, yeah, yeah. I think that that result is people's minds as to why. Uh, the, the thinking now among a lot of people is Leicester is in this title race. Uh, and I, I, I've joined that chorus. Uh, Spurs, there's still some doubts about. And then the other issue about Spurs is the youth of their players. Their guys have not necessarily gone through a full Premier League season without breaking down. Now, that could actually be a positive because it's very possible they have younger legs, fresher legs, more energy, uh, less experience may not uh, in, in, in a season like this where it, it doesn't seem to take any sort of guile. Or, or wittiness to, to be near the top of the table because this, the top of the league is so watered down. Uh, maybe that that's an advantage for them. But I think that's the other question mark is they don't have uh, they have a young coach and they have young players. Whereas with uh, Leicester, at least a, lo- a lot of folks have come around to the point of view that well they have unproven players in, in uh, on this big stage, but they're doing the job. They look right. And Claudio Ranieri is a manager. In spite of what happened at Greece prior to that, was a very accomplished manager that uh, is given a lot of credit for building Valencia into a powerhouse team, uh, given a lot of credit for his work in Italy, and even now uh, in, in hindsight with Chelsea. So I think that might be part of the reason why folks are looking at Leicester as more of a title contender than Spurs. Yeah, those are all very good points. Maybe I rely too much on things like they have the best defense in the league. They have one of the best goal differences in the league. Their attack is now second or third in the league in goals. So just kind of the basics. They're the best in the league at preventing goals, one of the best in the league at scoring goals. And at some point, this game just comes down to those two things. But Lawrence, like Kartik said, there probably are a lot of reasons for doubt. But how long do Spurs have to maintain this level to mitigate those reasons in your mind? Ooh, uh, I guess the point would be there, there are some sides that are built that over a lot of seasons. Chelsea seem to form on seasons back to back. Yeah, I guess there's also it's also about who in that side has done that before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there's but even then, I mean, there's first time for everything, and actually, it seems like their form is doing very well. The the point, I think, the point would be also the anomalous season sort of means that people are less uh, um, they're less committed to saying things like they're going to go win the title because. They realize, well, you know, if I say that, it's still, there's so many other factors that are probably going to take them out of that title race. Because yeah, there's such and I, a I low guess, chance, there's a lot, such a low point total of winning it in the first place. I think I, that point total goes down week after week. You can probably win it with 70 points this season. Right. <laughs> and yeah, and, and I, uh, I actually uh, plead, say, say that I obviously, we all reserve our right to change our mind. And I guess I've changed my mind in a sense because mm-hmm. last season at this time, I said Spurs would finish second to Chelsea next year. And now that we know how bad Chelsea is this season, I should be rightly picking Spurs to win the title. And Spurs are every bit as good as I thought they'd be uh, a year ago. They are now. I was but you just, you just can't put them number one, can players, you? But I just can't put them. Yeah. So I, I, there was a. it was easy to say, oh, they'll have the second best team. They're going to be better than Arsenal and Man City a year ago when I still thought Chelsea were going to be the best team in the league. Now that they're better than Chelsea and Arsenal and Man City look wobbly, I just can't 
make that commitment again. And it's odd because these players have all developed along the trajectory I saw them developing a year ago. In fairness, they are still fourth place. They are still five points back, I believe. So that's enough reason right there to still have some doubts. Can uh, Five or six points back, can they make up those points over the last 15 rounds of the season? At the same time, at this point, they are probably playing better than anybody else in the league. And Deli Ali's goal this weekend was probably the goal of the weekend. Check that out if you haven't before. Uh, we're going to go ahead and take our second break now. When we come back, we'll update you what's going on with Spain and Germany. Go through the results with Manchester United, Liverpool, and then segue into updating you on the championship and looking forward to midweek action in the League Cup semifinals. Stay with us. This is the World Cup Soccer Talk Podcast. The Bundesliga returned on Friday, perhaps ominously so for all non-Bayern teams in the league. Though the three-time defending champions only won 2-1 at Hamburg, Pep Guardiola's team outshot HSV 20-7, only allowed one shot on target, and held possession for 66% of the game. Robert Lewandowski scored both goals as FCB moved 11 points clear of Dortmund. Could Thomas Tuchel's team close that gap? They were in the weekend's marquee match at Andre Schubert's Gladbach, and few would have been surprised if the other Borussia took full points in this one. But thanks to goals from a newly healthy Marco Royce, Henrik Mkhitaryan, as well as Ilke Gundogan, BVB closed the weekend's most impressive, posted the weekend's most impressive result, winning on the road 3-1. Elsewhere, Hertha was held by Augsburg, Bayer drew at Hoffenheim, Schalke lost at home to Bremen, and Wolfsburg fell at Eintracht. Bayern still leads the league by 8 points, with the same distance separating Dortmund from 3rd place Hertha. In Spain, Atletico came into the weekend 2 points clear at the top of La Liga, but opened the door for Barcelona when they couldn't beat 10-man Sevilla, drawing 0-0 despite half an hour with a man advantage. Barcelona, though they met resistance at Malaga, got a 51st-minute goal from Lionel Messi to go back top of the table, their 2-1 win, plus their head-to-head tiebreaker with Atleti, leaving them atop of La Liga. As for Real Madrid, well, Real Madrid looked like they had an easy one today at Real Betis, still adjusting to life without Pepe Mel, but an early goal from the underdogs meant Real Madrid needed a cutting Benzema goal in the second half to salvage a 1-1 draw. They are now four points back of the leaders. Barcelona still has a game at hand on both of the Madrid clubs. Gentlemen, player of the week time. Let's start with you, Lawrence. Can I just go straight out and go Charlie Austin? You can. We've missed you in the Premier League. Seems a little strong. I didn't miss him that much. Really? No. I did miss him. I, and, and Liverpool uh, have, have lacked a, 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 an English forward up front. I feel like they should have been in the market for him. <laughs> Cheap comes on Old Trafford. And like everyone says, that's, that's Danny, $4 million repaid. Danny Ings. You've got Danny Ings. they got Daniel yeah, Sturridge somewhere too. Yeah, they got Daniel Sturridge somewhere. But it, neither of those guys are fitting in the side at the moment. So Very there's true. plenty of those English-style players who... Not, aren't always fit, but when they are, they do fantastic things. Um, and alongside him, obviously, uh, the guy, the guy United are targeting, Sadio Mane, who, uh, you know, I think didn't have such a bad game against United, but just couldn't finish things technically. Maybe showed why he's not quite at the United level yet. Hmm. Kartik? It's interesting they sound at the United level because Southampton keeps beating them. <laughs> but that, <laughs> yeah. that's a whole that's a whole other issue. Uh, I was thinking I was going with Alex Song this whole weekend. Alex Song was great. Boston midfield, besties looks since he came back to England, in my opinion. And I think he really impressed uh, Slavin Village, who hasn't trusted them as much as uh, Big Sam did in that role since he came back from Barcelona two seasons ago. Uh, but I have to go with Conte. Conte was just so good. And, and I realize every week, 
I assume, and I think we all assume, well, everybody else is picking Conte or Mares or Vardy, so let's not pick him. So this week I'm going to claim Conte. Uh, he's maybe the best player in the entire Premier League this season. I know that's a heady, sta- that's a big statement, but it, you, you could make that case. And uh, we'll see who you pick, Richard. Hmm. Well, I'm going with Diego Costa uh, for oh. all the controversy that is around him. But I thought about this in terms of the player who probably did the most to increase his team's chances of winning with his individual contributions. So if you think about before Mertesacker got his red card, Chelsea probably had like, I don't know, maybe like a 20, 25% chance of winning that game. Diego Costa did a lot to draw that red card. Some people believe uh, um, immorally so or unethically so. But after he did draw that red card, Chelsea's chances of winning probably went to something like 60%. And then after he scored the goal uh, that he did, the only goal in that game, Chelsea's chances of winning that game probably at that moment went to something like 78 80%, up 1-0 uh, in the 22nd minute and up a man. And I just didn't think anybody else probably had as much impact on uh game as much as Diego Costa did. Did people have better weeks as far as actually they're playing independent of the circumstances around them? Definitely so. I would hope so. There are a couple of people at Upton Park that seem to have better weeks in that regard. But I thought Diego Costa did the most to influence any game this weekend on his own. And so um, since it was a positive influence, I'm giving him the player of the week. Gentlemen, let's go back to talking about the matches. I don't know that there's a lot to talk about as far as the actual game is concerned at Old Trafford. Manchester United losing on a late goal for Charlie Austin, his debut with the Saints, 87th minute winner. Saints now have won three in a row, Lawrence, so a lot of the pessimism that we had about Ronald Koeman's team seems like it was a little bit premature. Or just correct at the time. Um, and and I, no one is more satisfied than one Dutchman beating another Dutchman. Am I right? Uh, and to be fair, he does. Maybe well, they have, they have a history, keep in mind, these two. Yep, they really do. <laughs> Koeman. That's from Barcelona days. Uh, they didn't. It didn't end well between them. This is the first time ever hearing about this, except for the twice a year that it comes up. Um, <laughs> except for the every except for every hippie article that it always comes up. Let's let's talk about Manchester United here, guys, because this is what most people are going to be talking about after winning at Liverpool. Although they only had one shot in that game, they only have one shot in this game too. So we're back to where we always seem to get back to every two or three weeks with Manchester United, Kartik. They're not showing any improvement going forward. Their results are not getting better. They don't look like they're a better, a better, um, cha- uh, they don't look like they're a better bet to make the top four, let alone challenge for the title like a lot of people thought they would do at the beginning of the year. So do they just stay on this treadmill for the next five months or how do they change this up? So Ashley Young is now injured, looks like long term. That's a, that's a bad one for them. Uh, he was one of the few guys that was consistently playing well for them. So yeah, I guess they just don't have the horses. I thought maybe Rooney was finding his goal-scoring vein again, but again, if no, if there are no chances, it's difficult for Rooney to finish chances and, and clean up what's uh, scraps in the area. Uh, and of course, he's less dynamic than he used to be. So, uh, Martial uh, seems to have hit a wall this season, and he he hasn't come out of it. I mean, I, I think about uh, Coleman, who got bought from Juve by uh, Bayern, uh, another Frenchman, young Frenchman. Maybe that was the better buy for for. Uh, Manchester United this summer of, of a young French kind of attacking winger type player than, than Martial, uh, just, just looking at, at transfers. So I, I don't know. I, th- I think this is where they are. I, I've come to that conclusion. We got, I got excited by the Liverpool result because I thought, okay, what Van Hal showed in this game is that they can play without the ball and they can have a smash and grab type victory. And they had not shown that all season, right? Uh, what, what's been happening generally is that they've had a lot of the ball. And they've created chances, and they haven't been able to take advantage of those chances. Well, then, this game, 
was the exact uh, opposite. They didn't have much of the ball. I mean, the possession stat, they they were uh, they had more possession. But it, it was about like, 50-50. Okay, it was about 50-50. It seemed like the better play, the better chances were Southampton's all match long, and they eventually got beat, and it was at home. So this is another loss at Old Trafford, which is, seems like uh, it, it's far from a fortress. The number of home matches they're losing is alarming as well. So uh, I, I don't know. I think this is where they are, and they're probably destined to finish fifth or sixth in the league. I think they shut United down very well. And at, at the same time, I find the analysis of Manchester United very hard to take. I don't like the entitledness, uh, the entitled nature of the way that a lot of people speak as if they, um, you know, pe- people are entitled to be entertained by the football. I don't think that makes any sense. Uh, well, if a fan base wants something, they want something. They're essentially the customers for this club. They are customers, but at the same time, I, I feel like there's a lot of sort of, I know there's obviously everyone's a very diverse group of people. So some people are supporting Louis, some people are supporting Manchester United. And some people say, well, it's, it's all Louis van Gaal's fault. Another manager would do better with this situation. I think he, they, they're probably right in saying that, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have his own merits. It means he's, you know, the worst. Um, and I also think that United and the board have to take some sort of, um, responsibility. It's not like, other people aren't sitting on that board with some sort of responsibility towards mm. the players and creating the right air at the club. And I feel like the players are almost in some sort of football purgatory because they can't play the football they want to play, but also at the same time they can't leave. But then when they want to leave, then they're told, well, you're the biggest football club in the world. Where are you going to go? <laughs> so you're almost held to, it's almost a held to ransom type situation here. And United have created this. If you want to market yourself as the most, you know, uh, the biggest club in the world or, or what everything they market themselves as, then you have to fulfill that. You can't just pretend to be that for ages, and then when it doesn't, you know, fulfill, then just sort of go, "Well, we were." And it this still has massive echoes of what happened to Liverpool just a few years ago, when they yeah. were, you know, desperately hanging on to what their status was, as opposed to looking at what their status was and working with that pragmatically. Mm. And who knows? Next year we could see Chelsea in the same situation. This might be a new pattern in the Premier League where you have these teams that are used to kind of getting by both on the field and commercially and everything else that goes into that, getting by on a certain reputation that has been established over the last decade. And when they hit adversity, they actually don't have the internal tools to deal with that. And so getting back to that status becomes difficult. Well, this was the first year, though. This was the first year, though, that Arsenal uh, had more profit than Chelsea did in 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 the Abramovich era, I think. Hmm. Well, that doesn't seem to bode well for Chelsea's uh, aspirations to get back to where they yeah, were. Yeah, the, the Deloitte Money League, Chelsea fell to fourth in the Premier League and something like ninth in Europe, eighth or ninth in Europe. That's interesting. Oh, very interesting. Um, you. you brought up Liverpool. Let's talk about what was the banner match what? of the weekend. Liverpool's yeah. 5-4 win at Carroll Road. At one point, they were down three in this match. Then they went up 4-3 capitulated in stoppage time, then came back in stoppage time with a winner. Lawrence, to me, this was the most Premier League match of the year. It was all action, terrible defending, uh, great product, but not necessarily great performances. I, I thought this kind of, as far as the Premier League was concerned, this kind of had it all. They were down, I think they were down two. I don't think Liverpool were ever down three, were they? Um, they were down three, one. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, I still don't find the most enjoyable. I, I love the passion from Klopp. I love all those other things. All of the um, components and ingredients I love. I don't necessarily love the product and the um, the outcome of that, though. Mm. Especially not a Liverpool you know, fan because that, you know, is so unpredictable. Um, you know, as much as they enjoyed the unpredictability just a few seasons ago, 
it's still not the same. There's still a lot of problems within that system, I think. And all the people at halftime, people criticizing Milner, Henderson, um, Lana, uh, all, all of the Moreno, especially. <laughs> and yeah. then suddenly in the second half, they all have something to do with all the goals that go in. Henderson so, actually finished a shot. It was great. Well, Henderson's actually been playing not as a striker. Someone said he was a striker, but he's yeah. playing a lot higher up the pitch more yeah. recently. And he's the first person to come out of that. that midfield to make up the numbers. And he's been, a lot of chances have been falling for him. Unfortunately, he hasn't been converting any of them until today. And he had a great finish today or yesterday yeah. on Saturday. Exactly. Which is interesting because he is actually one of the most technically gifted players on the Liverpool team in terms of striking the ball. Um, and I think that's what Liverpool want to see more of from him in the future. It's such an unpredictable, as Mourinho would say, it's a hockey score. So <laughs> there's not too much you can take from the game in terms of conclusions, apart from the very obvious sort of things. And, and so I think Liverpool already made those obvious conclusions. And and so for me, I'm, I'm not as happy with it as everyone else. And the neutral, whoever that person <laughs> is, obviously is with this match. Yeah. Um, in fact, I'm quite critical of it as a Liverpool fan. That I'd probably be the same as a Norwich fan because Norwich, you know, with 3-1 up at one point, it shows a sloppiness. For me, that's not a product. That's something that you, you find hard to market. What I do find interesting is the amount of plays that played out in this one. So it's almost like a kind of a basketball-esque style sort of thing that both sides put together a number of plays and those things worked out quite well. Hmm. Yeah, there are only three saves in this entire game. There are nine goals. Yeah, I mean, you can credit there's... Mignolet with that. You know, I mean, Mignolet <laughs> hasn't saved something sure. in a while. Sure. I feel terrible for that guy. <laughs> and I also feel terrible for the fact that he's getting criticism for Liverpool's contract renewal. Hmm. Well... You can't blame a guy for taking the money he's offered. Kartik, Lawrence mentioned hockey scores. And this is the second time in three league games that we've seen a hockey score from Liverpool. Obviously, the 3-3 against Arsenal, another game that had people very excited. That's That was the one where Joe Allen had the late equalizer there. In between which, they had that game against Manchester United where they had two or three good chances. But overall, their inability to finish showed up there. It makes it very hard to get a read on Liverpool. On one hand, you want to say, oh, they, they need better scorers. They need better forwards. Look what they did against Manchester United. But then in the games around there, they score eight goals. In most seasons, they would be the classic definition of a mid-table team because they're, they're, they're a team we have no read on. They're, they're Stoke in most seasons, although a different style of play, obviously. But uh, they, uh, in this watered-down Premier League season, or not wa- I shouldn't say watered-down because the league in itself isn't watered-down. Big, at the bottom, there's really only one very poor It's overflowing. Team. No, but it's, 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 it's a more competitive season. This is a team that still could finish fifth or sixth in the league because if, if, they, if they go uh, this sort of form, draw one, lose one, win one, and they're scoring all these goals, so they're, they're probably their goal difference will be better than, than whoever they're end level with and they've scored more goals, maybe they finish ahead of them. I, I think the, the reality for Liverpool, and Lawrence didn't like it when we said this in previous shows, but... And, and it does maybe devalue some of these matches as a supporter. But you've got a manager. You're the only side in the league besides Arsenal. And we don't even know about Arsenal anymore if Wenger is going to be forced out at some point. You're the only side in the league that has a long-term manager on the job now. A guy who is going to be taking this project for the next three, four, five years for certain. So this is about, and you're not going to win the title this season. You're probably not going to finish in the top four, and you're not going to get relegated. This is about finding out about his players. Uh, mentally, physically, uh, how they can play tactically, and and making those determinations. So this is another game, which I think is a teaching uh, match for Jurgen Klopp and an understanding of, of his squad match. And Liverpool will be better for it down the road. Yeah. 
One more match before we go to break. Watford's 2-1 win over Newcastle. Stymieing some momentum Newcastle took into this match. But Kartik, Watford snaps a four-match losing streak, getting goals from Odin Agalu and Craig Cathcart after halftime. Yeah, this is a pretty good game. The second half, uh, I watched uh, uh, much of it. I had watched mostly the Leicester game in the first half and then switched to this game. This game was very, uh, very good. I thought that Watford uh, showed the intensity and the quality up front, uh, particularly from those two strikers from Dini and Igalo that you've seen, that we saw earlier in the season before this recent swoon of, of a four-match losing streak. Newcastle wasn't bad as well. I know I say it every week, but Newcastle... They don't look like a team that'll get relegated to me. Now there are teams that are. We have this this saying: "Too good to go down," uh, and it's been applied this year to Chelsea and Everton and other sides. Newcastle appear. Newcastle are playing too well to go down. I'm not saying they're too good to go down in terms of the players they've assembled on the side. They're playing too well to go down. So I, I believe, even though they're back in the bottom three now, uh, they will find their way out of it. And this match didn't change my view on that at all. I think the last time we really said that about a team was Norwich two years ago, and I think we are all still a little surprised that they ended up going down. Right. Uh, everybody, we're going to take our last break now. When we come back, we'll update you on what happened in the championship, where there's a change at the top of the table. We're going to do our top fours, and then we're going to look to the midweek action where four Premier League teams are still alive in the League Cup. Stay with us. This is the World Soccer Talk Podcast. This is crazy to me. The championship, never known for being sane, we'll say that, has a new leader, even though Middlesbrough has been the division's best team for most of the season. Yet after last weekend's loss at Bristol City and this weekend's loss at home to Nottingham Forest, both 1-0 results, Borough has dropped to second place, with Hull City now sitting atop the championship's perch. Steve Bruce's team took advantage of a sliding Fulham for their fourth victory in a row, a 1-0 win at Craven Cottage thanks to a late penalty converted by Abel Hernandez. Speaking of winning streaks, Brighton now has one two, a cute little two-game winning streak thanks to goals from Bobby Zamora and James Wilson. The former league leaders are back within six of the top now after their 2-1 win over Huddersfield. Darby falls to fourth pending Monday's match at fifth place Burnley. Sheffield Wednesday has the last playoff spot after their draw at Reading. Though they don't actually have any real breathing room, Birmingham's 3-0 win against Ipswich has vaulted the Blues even with Wednesday, but behind a goal difference. Gentlemen, top four time. Let's start with you, Kartik. I'm going to go on form right now. Spurs, Leicester, Southampton, Man City. Did I forget someone? Yeah, no, I think that's right. And then at the end of the season, Arsenal, City, Leicester, Spurs. I have the same four at the end of the season. Uh, I'm still not willing to drop Arsenal from the top spot, even though they're now third in the league. And it goes back to the same question that we've been asking for the last couple of months regarding these top two spots. I need some proof that Manchester City's defense is going to be fine without Vincent Kompany. And if I get that proof, I'm going to vault City back number one. And if I don't get that, I'm going to be of the belief that Manchester City's defense is not going to be able to uh, get the points that they're going to need to claim first. Although who knows, like Lauren said, who knows how many points are going to be needed to win this league. Maybe 57, 58 this year, who knows. Uh, As far as on form, Spurs number one, Leicester number two. I have City number three, mostly because uh, their uneven results lately have been coming against good teams, and they haven't actually lost in a while. And then I have Southampton fourth, uh, with their given their winning streak. Lawrence, probably going to have to agree with both you guys. Uh, I, I think coming the end of the season, I'm going to put them in a, uh, the same top four as you. There's too much of a gap between Spurs and everyone else, and Leicester and everyone else. And mm. you know, even if we go th- through all the fixtures, you still pretty much get the same top four playing out at this point. So even if someone does drop off in form, you got that. But you know, going on form, we'll go Spurs, 
Leicester. <clears throat> I'm going to go Watford, and then I'll go. And then I'll go. And then I'll go Liverpool. <laughs> sure, uh, let's do that. So, we, so in they go, guys. And then, uh, <laughs> how many end of the season? It's the same. League Cup semifinals happening midweek, which means matches on Tuesday and Wednesday. On Tuesday, Liverpool quote-unquote, returns home from their first leg at Stoke City, up 1-0. Lawrence, this looks like, given how these two teams are playing, Liverpool should go through to the final on this one. Where do you see them potentially tripping up, or where could they trip up? Uh, well, yeah, just to say before, uh, when anyone has gone into the second leg with a lead from the first leg, uh, it's been very difficult to overturn. I don't actually think that's happened for Liverpool uh, since 1984 or something ridiculous like that. Um where they could probably trip up is the back line. I mean, you know, if, if Stoke are running at it in the right way, and uh, to be honest, you, you know, you're worried by the presence of a striker like um, Arnautovic or someone like that who maybe is going to be sort of bringing around the kind of aggression that Liverpool uh, maybe fear, but they didn't even play this weekend. Am I right? Yeah. Hmm. So wh- wh- who is going to be threatening Liverpool's back line? At that point, you're going to say it's someone like Shaqiri, Someone like Juf, um, and I th- so I think there's a lot of threat to the Liverpool backline. But at the same time, you know, you look at who Liverpool are going to break with. They're probably going to play a better side than they did in the FA Cup, and I think they have the ability to go toe to toe with a side like Stoke. Stoke are going to have to attack in this game. That's going to play into Liverpool's hands. Mm-hmm. And Kartik on Wednesday, Manchester City lost at Goodison Park two to one. At the time, we thought that was a poor performance, but a decent result for Manchester City. And now is their opportunity to capitalize on not exactly good fortune but uh the fortune to get out of goodison park with only a one goal deficit right and that was a poor performance uh, as we talked about but everton have been very very uh underwhelming in the league as far as their results are concerned and and you have to assume manchester city are going to score at least a goal in this game uh, maybe two goals keep in mind away goals in the league cup only matter if you go after 120 minutes, they, they, it prevents penalty kicks, but it's not a uh, it's not a determining factor. If if uh, uh, Manchester City wins is leading one nil after 90 minutes, there's still extra time at that point, and uh, the away goal only kicks in if uh, it remains deadlocked. Let's say it's still two two on aggregate after 120 minutes. Uh, Everton is uh, just a, a very confounding team, and and we, we'll get into this in a minute. But uh, I think most pe- people who know me realize that I have a soft spot for Everton. There were all these historical parallels between them and Manchester City, almost in many ways sister clubs. So many shared managers, so many shared players, shared stories as kind of being the second, the blue second club, which is the people's club in in, in uh, Manchester and uh, Everton being the same in, in Liverpool, which is 30 miles away. So I have a real soft spot for Everton and, and uh, it's been difficult to watch Everton this season, honestly. Uh, and Defensively, they are so poor, and they make so many mistakes, and I think a lot of them are tactical mistakes with their defending. You, you just have to fancy Manchester City to get at least a goal in this game, as difficult as, as City have, uh, have uh, had finding goals in, in some matches. That having been said, there was a nil-nil between the teams in the league just uh, a week and a half ago. Hmm. Transfers that have happened since our midweek show. Uh, Chelsea the defender that they brought in at the deadline this summer, Pape Jibobaji, I believe that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, they brought him in from France for some cover. Didn't use him at all. He's been loaned out to Werder Bremen. Leicester, that high-profile striker signing that they had a couple of years ago, or at least winter of last year, Andre Kamaric, he's been loaned out 
to Hoffenheim. Sunderland signed longtime, uh, longtime Newcastle goalkeeper Stephen Harper as somebody to bring in as kind of not only backup to nurture some of their young talent. And then Lawrence Mauro Zarate leaves West Ham for Fiorentina. I think uh, the thing that caught our eye here was the price. It was less than two million pounds. Yes. How low is that? That's that's very, very low, Richard. <laughs> I don't I have no idea what a pound is. I don't even know whose face is on a two million pound note. I don't know what I can buy for a two million pound note. It just I'm Barack told Obama. Like... Barack Obama's face. <laughs> Boy, Steve Steve Harper's made a nice uh, living since retiring. He retired <laughs> a few seasons ago. But he still lives he still lives in uh uh, the the that region uh, in the northeast of the country, so it's logical for Sunderland. Yeah, he was doing some work with Sunderland before this. I can't remember if it was TV work or or something of that nature. And then Sam Allardyce has decided to bring him in, and I guess he's going to look work a lot with Jordan Pickford over the next four or five months. So we'll see how that goes. I guess we won't see because we're not going to actually be at training every day. Let's talk about the three games that we haven't discussed yet. Kartik, you alluded to this one. Swansea with a bit of a surprise result here, a two to one victory over Everton. Sunday's first game. Everton outshot Swans 20-7 to in this one, but only got two of their shots on target. Uh, Swansea getting a much-needed victory here. But I suppose the story is, like you discussed, Everton's, Everton's defense. Yeah, John Stones, I think, is regressing as this, this season goes on, the longer he stays in this Martinez team. And we know he's not going to get sold. So he, he's making sort of mistakes, uh, distribution mistakes, uh, positioning mistakes that we're not accustomed to seeing from him. And we hadn't seen from him prior to, I would say, the last few weeks. I mean, really started in that Manchester City game, the nil-nil, where he did take down Raheem Sterling and, and the, the official missed the, the, the clear penalty. Chad Pellegrini fuming after the match. There uh, seems to be a little too much emphasis, again, in Martinez teams. And I, and I hate to keep coming back to this because I think Martinez's time should be up at Everton, but it's not. Clearly, the, there's a little less pressure in this job, which is why Moyes coasted for so many years, although Moyes' results were certainly better than Martinez's results. No doubt about that. Uh, but given the outlay of money they've spent, that they didn't sell uh, they didn't sell uh, uh, Stones over the summer. They didn't sell Naismith until this week, so they had Naismith the first half of the season, and he scored three goals for them against Chelsea early in the year, as you remember. Uh, being in 12th is unacceptable. And the thing... I notice about Martinez's teams, and I noticed this at Wigan also, and maybe it was different at Wigan, is that when you have these holding midfield players, he's now inserted Vesic in the team, and Vesic is, uh, is, is that was a change a couple of weeks ago that, that seemed to solidify their midfield. But Vesic and Barry are consistently, uh, in some games it's only one of those two guys playing, they're consistently out of position uh, when, when the ball transitions the other way. The, and same thing for McCarthy, actually. He's another player that I'm uh, a, a big fan of, and I think he has kind of regressed in his positioning sense. And I have to think it's Martinez, again, wanting his central midfielders to bomb forward and be in advantageous attacking position because they keep a lot of the ball, they keep possession, and be in a, in a position to recycle the ball quickly on the attacking end. But those guys are consistently out of position. I noticed it again today, and this is a critique I could have made a couple of weeks ago. But uh, I think... Time should be up for Martinez, although 
it appears like uh, there's not much pressure except from supporters. So hmm. Everton supporters are beginning to get a little restless, but uh, yeah. no no move seems imminent. Yeah, Everton supporters seem to have found a lot of reasons to be restless over the last couple of years. Of course, Roberto Martinez has been that person, but you see a fan base flying planes over stadiums. I'm sorry, I just can't take that fan base that seriously when they're resorting to that. But Lawrence, I imagine you, like me, don't exactly agree with Kartik regarding... Uh, Roberto Martinez, his time maybe should be up. At the same time, the results lately have been a little bit discouraging, not only on the defensive end, but their inability to convert performances like today into more than just one goal and into points. Yeah, although the club's going going to go through a takeover very soon. So I think a lot of people are anticipating a lot of change at that point. If that takeover doesn't happen, then we're probably looking at them losing Martinez. But I imagine that the club's a lot more saleable with a stable manager and not you know, moving through a lot of issues at the time, say, you know, something that's going to make it look as if, you know, they don't have the long-term stability. So I think that they're much happier with Martinez at the helm and sort of at least looking as if he's guiding the team in a, an, an adventurous direction and there's a lot of media buzz about them rather than, you know, uh, say an interim manager coming in and the club struggling to find someone because, you know, it looks like they just sack managers if they don't do well. Hmm. Speaking of managerial changes, Sunderland, Bournemouth, obviously we're not talking about Bournemouth there. Uh, we're still evaluating the recent change that Sunderland made, Lawrence. Sam Allardyce seems to be inching them forward, but it's kind of like the Aston Villa situation where you see some results coming in and they're starting to get closer, but at some point you want to see some bigger signs of progress. And at home against Bournemouth, a Bournemouth team that has been playing very well, you still kind of circle this as a game that a team that needs to get out of the relegation battle also needs to get three points from, and they didn't. Yeah, although, uh, you know, I, I see what you're saying. That Bournemouth have done very well and uh, overachieved a lot against sides this season who very often at the beginning of the season we would have put them down to lose against because of the style of play. We would have put them down as a kind of a, this side plays beautiful football, therefore they'll be shut down with this style. But at the same time, they've done very well to compete against those sides. And Sam Allardyce is another one of those managers you'd expect that against. And so here's another result where actually uh, I, I think the Bournemouth overall probably be more disappointed than Sunderland would at this point. Hmm. Um, the reason being that I think Sam Allardyce is as progressive as he is I think he, uh, or at least sounds, just reading those stats and I think putting them and implementing them doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be implementing them correctly or in the most progressive way. And I think we assume that about Big Sam. Um, and I think sometimes all all clubs under him could probably be more progressive or, you know, in the same way United fans are feeling frustrated with Van Gaal, I imagine there's a similar feeling around Big Sam at certain clubs, unless you've had this long period of real change which Sunderland have at which point he comes in steadies the ship and looks very satisfied with himself hmm. we're going to be experiencing some real change between now and our midweek show when Nipun Chalper wait what there was another game oh yeah sorry yeah Richard yeah that the Midlands exist there was yeah yeah they're, they do uh, they're yeah. top of the table Leicester's topping the table they're in the middle that's the only <laughs> Premier League team in the Midlands it's not no no Kartik actually it's not, it's not just Leicester there's uh two other sides being there being run uh, yeah. Oh, Darby and Forrest. They're, yeah. Oh, no, they're not up yet. Guys, yeah, I just no, asked Siri, and Siri said there was a game that happened at the Hawthorns this week, and I, I don't have any evidence. Oh, of it, they're in the Premier League still, West Brom. Oh, jeez. Hmm. I guess uh, they're, really they're still there. I feel sorry for Remy God. Yeah, I guess we shouldn't be too dismissive about this because Aston Villa is showing a lot of signs of improvement. They outshot West Brom. 
15 to 4 in this game. But I think part of the reason that we're acting like this about this game, this is the fifth time this year that West Brom has gone 90 minutes without a shot card ticket. I just can't remember a team in my Premier League watching days that I looked forward to watching less than this Baggies team. I agree with that, and uh, Ayu was taken down in the area early in the first half. Clear penalty. Yeah, for, Olsen got away with that. Right, yeah, and Villa were much better. I, I agree with what Lawrence just said. I think uh, Villa have actually, these last few games under Remy Gard, he finally has a handle of his personnel. If they had an out-and-out goal scorer, I think they'd have several more points and be in within distance, touching yeah. distance. And after what Leicester escape. did last year, we shouldn't write anybody off. I mean, we can acknowledge that they seem out of touch from the rest of the league right now, but after what Leicester did last year or the various escapes we've seen Sunderland go through lately or what Fulham did a few years ago, I don't think we should write anybody off. No, we, we can't, but I think the issue here is that they don't have a guy who can bang in goals. And I, right. I think if they had, they just had that striker, they would have won yesterday. They would have won uh, the Leicester game. They went to one, but they, there, there are several games. They, they've had a bunch of draws under guard. The, some, several of those games you could make a plausible argument they would have won and yesterday for certain they were the better team I actually thought that they were playing some good football too keeping the ball on the ground nice movement uh, the other team uh, the Pulis team is, is abject you know I the show for a while no I used to defend Tony Pulis and I continued to defend him until this season uh, this team is worse than the worst Stoke team to watch I, I cannot believe how bad they are honestly <laughs> Lawrence well, I, I, you were talking earlier about teams being pragmatic and playing in a pragmatic style. Um, you know, I'm just, just wondering if both those sides, uh, to some extent, West Brom take it almost a step too far yeah. and uh, Aston Villa don't do it enough. Um, and it, it's unusual because at the beginning of the season, I think a lot of people thought that that's what the style of Tim Sherwood would be, would be the, this pragmati- the pragmatic pragmatist. Yeah, yeah, very yeah top no, actually, these... Okay, so these teams are about three, three or four miles apart of the, the area, no, they're, they're neighbors. And they sacked their manager, West Brom sacked Alan Irvine, about three or four weeks before Paul Lambert was sacked by Villa. And I've talked to some Villa fans in the last two or three months who've said to me, you know what, if we had sacked our manager first, we probably would have gotten Pulis and we would have stayed up and that's all we want to do. But they were the same fans who were complaining about the style of play under Lambert and uh, Lambert was very pragmatic, getting results the way Pulis does. Not quite this bad, but very pragmatic. And then they were the ones who were excited by Sherwood. Here's an attacking manager. Here's a guy who's going to play play for three twos, four threes. And they played that way and got to the FA Cup final. But uh, now, in hindsight, they kind of miss having the pragmatic manager. I think it's very ironic. Everybody, we are going to sign off now. We're going to be coming back to you midweek as well as next weekend, even though the Premier League doesn't join us again until next Tuesday. Which What are those shows going to be? Who's going to be on those shows? We're going to decide that over the next couple of days, but expect a couple of topic-driven shows just like we did earlier this month. Uh, but until then, for everybody at the World Soccer Talk family, for my co-host, Lawrence McKenna, Kartik. Enjoy your football. The World Soccer Talk podcast is a production of World Soccer Talk and is executive produced by Christopher Harris and produced by Richard Farley. You can get the podcast a number of different ways, including Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Audioboom, or you can go to worldsoccertalk.com to download the show directly. To get in touch with one of the hosts, you can reach out to them on Twitter. I'm Richard Farley. Kartik is KKFLA737. Lawrence is LOZCAST, LawsCast. And Nipun is Nipun Chopra7. Don't want to bother with Twitter? Go ahead and reach out via email. Richard 
at worldsoccertalk.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 